or turning, as you're turning there, um, I took a class at Denver Seminary called Pastoral Ministry, and it was led by a guy named Dr. James Means. And um, that's kind of funny now, I listen to it. Uh, I always thought he was kind of like an intimidating guy, like a mean guy, but he wasn't a mean guy, he was just intimidating as all get out. I was always scared to talk to him. And uh, took a small church, led it, grew it up to, I don't know, 1,500, great guy, um, awesome leader. And he would teach our class, and every, you know, every time we got together, that whole semester, he would get up in front and read scripture. Well, actually, he wouldn't read scripture, he would quote scripture. And, and we started, like, wondering, like, how much of the Bible does this guy know? Because he would get up there and quote a whole chapter, or he'd quote a whole book. And there were times when, and, he, you know, he was later on in his career, and there were times where this stoic guy would, would have tears literally coming down his face as he's quoting scripture. Overwhelmed by what he was quoting and this God he loved. And, and he'd hid the word of God in his heart. And he would just stand up there and just go on and on. And sometimes it was five or 10 minutes of him solidly just quoting scripture. He was one of those guys God used, people God used. Um, there's been several in my life, but he was one of these guys that inspired me to do more, and specifically to memorize. And uh, so I started memorizing a chapter here and then a chapter there. Then I, and then I was like, oh, let me try to do a whole book. So I did one of the shorter books in the New Testament. And then I had this thought. I, I, I don't know if you guys have these thoughts, but if, if I was ever put in prison for my faith or if I was ever, you know, at a place where we were in a country where they would take the Bible away from me, I had nothing. If I was ever on a deserted island, I don't know why I would be on a deserted island, but, you know, what book would I want to have memorized? Um, and, and you read stories. I just read one recently over in Russia uh, back in the 40s and 50s. A bunch of Christians in, a, in an area church, several churches, decided, hey, look, if we're, if we're going to get persecuted for this, we better have this word in our hearts. And so they all broke up the New Testament and memorized different sections. So at any given point, if they got the Bible taken away from them, they could actually rewrite the whole thing out. And I thought, that is so cool. So I looked around New Testament, thought, okay, which, you know, what book would I memorize that would actually, like, you know, I'd want to have. And I, I saw Romans, and I thought, yeah, Romans is it. And so over the course of years, I, I've tried to memorize Romans, and uh, we're starting to head into this series. And I... I you know, as I started memorizing, I was like, wow, this book, and you know, it's, it's a gospel, right? It's profound. It's both simple and deep. And so it was, it was simple. I was like, oh, it's so simple. I get it. It's so clear as I'm memorizing it. And yet it kept taking me deeper and deeper and deeper. And when Dr. James Means quoted scripture, you could tell it was not about himself. It was about the word of God. And, and as we go through Romans here, I, you know, I have, when, we st when I started memorizing, I thought, when am I ever going to preach this book? Because there's so much I have to learn. And now, just in the last couple of years, I've sensed God saying, you know, it's time. Let, let's, let's do this thing. Let's go through Romans. Um, and so I'm going to be quoting Romans as we go through it. And I'm almost done memorizing, so it's kind of like the, the little needle you need in the back to go, hey, finish this off. Um, 
but I don't want it to be about me. My prayer is that it would hopefully inspire you, just like Dr. Means inspired me to memorize the word and to put it in your heart. So here's Romans chapter one. As we begin, we'll be going up through verse 16. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, That's how it's going to start. Humbling. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, but who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may mutually encourage each other. That is, that you and I may mutually encourage by each other. Ah, I just messed it up. Um, That's what happens here. You start to memorize. So hopefully that's also the humility part of this thing. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is the power for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. If you want to understand Romans, you have to understand Paul. And if you want to understand Paul, you have to go to Acts, because that's where we first discover Paul. Paul was a rising superstar in the Jewish, Jewish religious circles. He, he was kind of this rock star. He'd been under the tutelage and the schooling of one of the most famous teachers of his time. Everybody knew about Saul was actually his name before he became Paul, and we'll get to that in a second. But everybody knew about him. This, this was a guy who was on the rise to become one of the premier leaders of Israel. And we catch up to him. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The, the church has been filled with the Spirit. Now they're out witnessing and telling everybody about this way of following Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, they're telling everybody that Jesus is the Messiah, and he rose from the dead, and he's now on high. And, and we meet Saul just as one of Christ's followers, Stephen, is finished talking to all, all of these Jewish men and women who are assembled about Jesus and that he's the Messiah. And we discover Paul at the end 
end of this proclamation, it says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard this, this message of Stephen about Jesus, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, who we know as Paul, was there giving approval to his death. The church is persecuted now, scattering all over the Middle East, North Africa, Greece, Rome, all over the place. It's spreading. And meanwhile, it says over in, in chapter 9, we fast forward, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is the way of Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And then verse 10 down through 16 talks about this guy that God sends to him, and Ananias. And in verse 17, Ananias goes to the house where Saul is and enters it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. <laughs> And taking some food, he regained his strength. And right there where I end, and between that and the next sentence that starts, there's a three-year break. And this is where Saul's name was changed to Paul. Why? I don't understand all the ways of God, but sometimes he not only transforms our life, but he changes names. It's just what God does sometimes. I hope it's not that bad. He's running out. <laughs> Sorry. So Paul starts this book. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he says, I have received grace in apostleship. He says, through him and for his name's sake. In verse 5, I have received grace in apostleship. Two things from God he got. Grace. In that one moment of encountering Christ and then the days being led blind and then don't miss three days blind. 
three days blind. And on the third, he sees and is baptized. I wonder during that time if he saw his whole life. He was this man known to love God and his ways, love God enough to kill people, to keep people pure, following God, and then to find out he's been murdering people. He's been destroying the very people God loves and that are part of his family, and to hear God himself say, you're persecuting me. And he writes 25 years later, I know what I got from Christ. I got grace. 25 years later, he writes to these Romans and he says very clearly, what I received from Christ is clear to me. Grace. You remember that moment? And maybe that period of time when it when you were starting to fear, listen, hear, I don't know, that journey, discover Christ and realize he is Lord, he's my savior. And maybe that was a moment in time, maybe that was a process, I don't know, but you remember the overwhelming understanding he sees me for all that I am and all that I've done and yet he still loves me and gives me grace. I think sometimes this gets so removed that we don't think about it and we don't realize it. I've been asked Chris Aguilar to come up and to share his story this morning. And I think as he shares his story, I want you to, I think what it'll do hopefully is put us in this place of Paul writing a letter and us remembering like Paul that day when we met Christ. So everybody say hi to Chris. Hi. Uh, so, you started as? I started as a poor black child. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bad quote. Um, Sorry. I am uh, Hispanic. I was born in San Antonio, Texas. I am 65 years old. I do have a sister in Houston, by the way, who uh, her house is okay, but her barber shop is underwater. Oh, wow. So, if you could pray for her. Um, I was born in San Antonio, and uh, Hispanic families are very close and tight-knit. And I grew up in that culture, uh, surrounded probably by 40 aunts, uncles, cousins, and uh, grandparents within a two-block radius. And uh, filled with love and, uh, and just joyful times uh, in that situation. Until my father decided to move up here when the Lordstown plant opened up, and uh, I never forgave him for that. I'm just kidding. Um, but he moved us up here in December during the uh, Christmas break. So uh, that meant we were moving from beautiful San Antonio where you know, winters, it gets down to 40, 45, you know. I had never seen snow accumulated on the ground down there and uh, up here, and I remember it was freezing, and, uh, and I had to start a new school system in the middle of the school year. It's bad enough when you have started on the beginning, but in the middle. 
And so I was angry about leaving my family and having to start a new school system. Mad about that. And then my father decided to move. Uh, that We lived in Cuyahoga Falls, and my father decided to move to Northampton at uh, the end of that school year. So I had to start another new school system. And I was mad about that, uh, about leaving the friends I had just uh, found and having to start all over again. And I, I'm the oldest of uh, five. And um, so uh, got situated in there. And after about three years there, my uh, mother decided to, she had had enough and divorced my father. And she left, which wasn't the norm back in those days. That didn't happen very often. But she left because she really had no choice. Otherwise, she would have been stuck there. I didn't know that till later. But And uh, so my father worked second shift, which meant that I would have to watch the kids after school was out. I would have to come home, get them clothes, you know, give them a bath, get them clothes, make sure they got their homework done, all that stuff in bed. And uh, I did that, and uh, not happily, because that meant no more football, no more wrestling. Uh, all that was out the window. So I was mad about that. You see a, a, a thread working through all of this. And then uh, about, it was during my junior year, my mother uh, had found a place, had found employment, and she uh, told my younger brothers and sisters that she was going to take them back, uh, but she didn't want me. I was the oldest and I could take care of myself, and uh, I really appreciated that. And uh, I was mad about that, but I said, you know, I'd had enough, so I uh, found a job at a Clark gas station, and uh, the guy who owned the gas station let me sleep in the back, and my best friend's mom would uh, wash my clothes and feed me, and so I got through my junior year and most of my senior year till uh, a bunch of us decided to go to Ocean City, Maryland and uh, for spring break, and uh, I didn't come back for six months, which of course means I didn't graduate high school. And uh, eventually we did come back and uh, just started life. Uh, during all this time, uh, I was the first one, me and another guy, believe it or not, we're the first ones in our high school to get high. Uh, that's how old I am. Uh, we were the first ones in our high school to get high, and naturally we turned on all of our friends, and because we were the source for all that, we were making all kinds of money, and uh, and we had, uh, you know, we just partied. Day and night, partied, sold drugs, did our thing. I was a hippie back in those days. I had uh, just found a, a picture yesterday, showed it to my wife of me and my son, Lance. Uh, you couldn't see my hair completely, but it was down to my butt. I actually had hair back then. Uh, see, there's no hair under here, very little. And uh, I was a full-blown hippie. I was into all that stuff. And, and so uh, that's, that was my life, just partying, selling drugs, and you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as the cliche goes. 
And so I was just living my life, and my girlfriend at that time decided to stop taking the pill and didn't tell me. And she got pregnant. And so I was mad about that. And, uh, but I had to get a job, get an apartment, get furniture, all that stuff. I went and did that, and, um, but I was mad. I was mad about having to do all that. And so I took it out on her, not physically or anything like that, but I would uh, get my paycheck on a Friday, and I wouldn't come back home till Sunday night with half of it gone and just partying with my friends and all that. And, and after a while, she had had enough of that. After about two years, she had enough of that, and she... Uh, got a divorce, and she moved into her own place with our son. And she was living with a guy there, and uh, they were on the second-story apartment. And um, one day, either he pushed my son down the flight of stairs, or he fell down. They never were quite sure, but he got convicted of pushing him down the flight of stairs. And he was... Uh, he was brain dead. He lived for three days till we took him off the respirator, and he passed away. And over all that time, over all those things that had made me mad, I was just cold and pretty much lifeless. Didn't care about anybody or anything. Nobody cared about me. Nobody loved me. Nobody wanted me, so I didn't care about them. And uh, after he died, I was really done. I was completely done emotionally. And uh, I just partied. And uh, eventually, I overdosed twice and was comatose both times for two to three days. Um, and the doctor said I should have died both times. And I didn't. And you know why as well as I do, because God had something in mind for me talk to you today. And uh, so uh, after the second one, I knew if I stayed in Ohio, I'd kill myself. You know, not purposely, but I'd overdose again. So I joined the Navy, got out of Ohio, figuring uh, maybe I could stay cleaner in the Navy. And what a joke that was. There's more drugs and drinking in there than there was in Ohio. And, but I survived, and I got out of the Navy, and eventually made my way back here to Ohio. But I was still the same guy. I was cold, emotionless, didn't care about anyone or anything. And I just went to work, and that's pretty much where I was uh, before Christ came into my life. And that's the guy I was. Uh, not a pretty picture. And then you're at work. Mm. And just tell. Uh, um, I was working at a place in Twinsburg, and uh, there used to be this guy that worked there who was a, a compulsive gambler and just a real degenerate all around. And uh, he had hit at the racetrack for $5,000 one day, and he comes into work. He says, I'm going to quit. I'm going to move to Florida. And we said, uh, okay, we'll see. You know, like $5,000 is going to last a compulsive gambler more than a week. So he leaves, and life goes on, still doing our thing, partying all the time. And uh, about six months later, I go into work, and there's this guy, Jim was his name, and he's talking to a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Delbert. 
And uh, I'm going to my office, but Delbert's waving me over. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to mess with Jim. And, but he kept yelling at me to come over, so I did. I walked over there, and Delbert says, Jim's trying to talk me into doing something, and uh, I trust your judgment. If you think it's on the up and up, I'll do what he wants me to do. I said, okay. So, uh, by the way, uh, I was born in San Antonio, Texas, born a Roman Catholic, whatever that means. I never darkened a church door a day in my life, didn't know anything about religion, never uh, didn't know much about God or Jesus, although I knew there was some reason we were here. We existed for some reason. I didn't know what it was, but I'd studied philosophy and, and always thought that every system of thought that I uh, studied always came down to the same conclusion that life is meaningless and empty, so you better live it up while you can. And that's what I did. But as soon as he shared the gospel with me, it's like a light switch went on. And I said, that sounds true. That sounds like it's real. And uh, so Jim was there to get Delbert to go to church with him that Sunday. Delbert didn't go, but I did. I went to church with Jim. And uh, it was a small Baptist church in Ravenna, a little Baptist church with a fire and brimstone Kentucky preacher. And he uh, gave a salvation invitation at the end. and. As I was standing there, I was standing next to a guy that I had never met, never seen him before, and uh, he gave the invitation. The guy looked right at me and said, don't let the devil stop you from going up there. And I ran down that aisle, and I got saved that day. And it was uh, the most awesome thing when I gave my life to Christ. I felt like I was standing under Niagara Falls and the love of God was flooding over me because that's what I was missing in my life, love. Nobody loved me. Nobody cared about me, was concerned about me. And uh, the love of God just flooded over me and ever since that day, I have felt the love of God every day of my life. Ephesians 3.19 says, may you experience the love of God, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. For then you will be filled with the life and power that comes from Christ. That's what the love of God can do for you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Through Christ and for Christ's name, I received grace. It's not just a word. 
It's exactly what Chris is articulating when Paul writes that. It's 25 years later, and it's as if he's on that road, and when he writes grace, it means that. I'll never forget it. The Romans don't all know that yet, but they will. 25 years later, and it's one of the first words that Paul writes, and it's one of two things that he received from Christ. I received grace, and he says something else. I received apostleship. Before we go to that, he introduces himself, interestingly, as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Servant of that time as an insult. They had servants. Servants were on the lowest rung, right, of or beyond slave, slave than servant, lowest rung of society. Nobody wanted to be called a servant. And here's this superstar. Doesn't want anything to do with that. 25 years later, introducing himself, just going, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant. That's all I am. I don't want any of that other stuff. I'm just a servant of Christ. Christ came and forgave him everything. Forgave everything. Stephen, I mean, those words have to be just going through his mind. He's hearing Stephen shout, Lord, do not hold this against them. And he says, I'm just a servant. It's all I am. I just go where Jesus tells me to go. I just, I'm his. I got no rights. I have no power. I have no say. I'm under his rule, under his control, and just, just a servant. And he says several other things. He writes about the gospel and about Jesus, and these are significant statements that he writes about, and, and we don't have time to do Paul and those two statements. So we're going to talk about the gospel and Jesus next week out of these first 16 verses. But I want to go to this idea that he received from God apostleship. Apostleship is a calling. It's, it's also a position. It's capital A, apostleship. Because there's a, there was 11 guys who were called apostles and they voted on another guy to come in to make 12 because Judas obviously had betrayed Christ and was no longer part of that group. And so these 12 were apostles, and they had the criteria, they had been with Christ all through his ministry, they had witnessed Christ's resurrection, and they received a specific calling from Christ himself. That was the criteria, and those were the 12 men. Paul made it 13 because Christ comes in, and, and Christ does what Christ wants to do. And he's like, you're an apostle. I'm an apostle now. Makes Paul an apostle. There's some debate as to whether there's maybe three to five more men that were uh, considered Apostle with a capital A, but Paul's in that group. Apostle is someone who is an emissary, someone who was sent. And it's interesting because he receives this apostleship, this position to go and reach Gentiles. This Jew among Jews is what he writes in Philippians. Anybody want to brag about their pedigree? I can brag all day. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jew, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. In regards to law, faultless, as for a zeal, persecuting the church. I mean, he's got it all. And, and God says, I want you to go reach Gentiles. 
wah, wah, wah. Makes him apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what he received from God and to be a light to the Jews. His primary calling is to the Gentiles. Who, are, who is a Gentile? Anyone who's not a Jew. Pretty broad category. And so we pick up this letter, Romans. It's 25 years into this calling to be an apostle. And Paul is finishing up his third missionary journey, going around Asia Minor from Israel to Lebanon to, you know, what we call Syria, Turkey, uh, Greece, all these churches, all these cities where he's planting churches and training pastors and training up people to go and to be missionaries. And, and he's, he's just being used by God all over the Gentile world. And at this point, he's written more than a third of the New Testament. He's still got a couple more books to write. Romans is, is one of them. Suffers immensely, persecuted immensely, lonely, abandoned, but he never quits the call. And you see this apostolic thing, and it's critical because he's, he's establishing his right to have authority over them which we don't like that word authority here in America. It's that independent spirit. And he's writing them to say, no, I, actually, I am your spiritual authority. And you hear this uh, thing of apostle woven throughout. He says, you know, through his name and for his name's sake, we were given grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. And you also are among those who belong to the Gentiles. So he's like, and you also are part of this call and, and you come unto me. He goes on to write in verse 13, and he says, like, I'm longing to see you in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And then he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. Obligation means I'm required. This is not something I get out of. This is God who's put this on me. I'm obligated to Greeks, non-Greeks, the wise and, and the foolish, and that's why I'm so eager to preach that gospel also to you who are at Rome. This apostleship just, it's all through this introduction, and it has everything to do with authority and a specific calling that God has given him to move into these churches that are established and also to establish churches in the Gentile world. What do you do with this Jew, or what do you do with the Greek, non-Greek, wise, foolish? It's Greek, non-Greek is the same thing that we would call like a city slicker versus a redneck. It's the same thing. Back in the day, they had their words, we have our words, it's all the same thing. 25 years, he's probably around 52 years old. And he's writing a letter, and we'll find out. I mean, he's, he's coming to them. He's not slowing down. And when you think about the age span and the life expectancy of that era, he's 52 years old, which is old for that age or that time period, that era. And he's not stopping. He's still going strong. And it's at 25 years into ministry, he writes what many regard as one of the most comprehensive letters on doctrine and theology. You could argue Hebrews is just as, is just as strong, but Romans, Romans is up there if it's not the one. And he keeps this whole letter focused on, and we'll talk about it next week, Jesus and the gospel. So that's Paul, 
And I want to real quickly introduce to you Rome and the Roman Christians. He'd never been to Rome. He knew some of the Christians there, because if you go back and read in chapter 16, he gives all these greetings to people who are already in Rome. But he's never been there, so there's a lot of people that don't know who he is. And, and we find out he's writing to the Romans because he says to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's addressing them. He's saying to all y'all in Rome, hi, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then he starts, and the first thing he says is, first, I thank my God for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And then he's off and running with his letter. So all we really know about the Romans at this point is they have faith that's famous. These Romans who were getting this letter lived during the time of Nero. Nero's a bad dude. Uh, insanely evil. Hadn't happened yet, but he was famous for dousing Christians with oil and then lighting them on fire to light his gardens. That's the Nero we're talking about. That hadn't happened yet. What had happened is he'd already kicked the Jews out of Rome because he felt like they were causing too much of a ruckus and always causing fights and stirring up strife and all of that. So he, he literally just kicks them all out of the city. And what happens is the church has already been planted. The Jewish leaders typically were the ones that were the leaders of those early congregations because they had the most history with God and they understood Messianic Judaism, right? Jesus is the Messiah, and so it was a natural fit. But now they're gone, and the Gentile Christians are left. For three years this happens, and now you see the Gentile church, by the end of three years, gets established. And, and they're kind of, they're, you know, the ship is steadied. They're getting used to this leadership and then Nero lets the Jews back in, and that happens right before Paul writes this letter. In fact, he's hearing some of the stuff that's happening in Rome because the Jewish Christians get to come back into Rome, and now you have this merging of the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, and, well, who's calling the shots? Who's in charge? What traditions do you follow? What traditions don't you follow? And it creates a lot of conflict, and you'll see that later on in chapter 14. But he writes this. He says, your faith is famous. It's known all over the world, which hyperbole for that area, right? The world of the Mediterranean, the known world. Their faith is famous, and we don't know why it's famous. It's gotten me to think a lot about our faith, Freshwater's faith. You know, I, I read this and I just sit back and go, is our faith famous? Uh, about 10 years ago, eight to 10 years ago, we had three different authors come to our church separately and, and approach me and say, we'd like to write, I'd like to write about your church and what God's doing with your church. And at that time, God had taken this church that was dying for 20 years with the people that were there, the stubborn, healthy ones is what we like to call them, and, and uh, filled with faith and withstood all the conflict of 20 years, and God used their faith and prayers and turned this church around and, and brought myself and my wife to, uh, here, and it was a great partnership. And they were writing about how, how do you turn around a church? And so we're in three separate books. A chapter in each of those books is dedicated to freshwater. There's also a guy who wrote his doctoral paper, dissertation, I don't know what you call it, on our church. 
Uh, we were famous. We actually got to speak at national conference. I say we, I represented us, but they asked me to come and share our story about how God turns around churches. We were famous. And our goal wasn't to set out to be famous. And we don't talk about it because, great. But it's gotten me to think in the last three years, five years, nobody calls anymore. not so famous anymore. When you get calls, it makes you sit back, it makes me sit back and go, wow, God is doing something. And I remember all of us just going, we're not touching the glory of this one. This is God. He is up to something. It's awesome. It was hard. Those weren't easy years, but we saw God move. There was a time when our faith was famous, and, and the question I have inside of me, and I don't, I don't know, you know how it's, it, you don't want to be driven by the wrong thing, and I don't want to be driven to become famous, but I still think the question, it begs the question, is our faith famous for the right reasons? Does that make sense? Not for the wrong reasons. Why don't people call us anymore? for the right reasons. There's this Snoopy cartoon. Linus throws a stick for Snoopy to fetch. And you see this stick go off. Next caption, you know, Snoopy's all excited. Next caption, Snoopy's not running after the stick, but pausing, thinking. And the next caption, you see what he's thinking. And I don't know whether it's Snoopy writing this or Charles Schultz writing this. But he, Snoopy says, I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than he was a nice guy. He chased sticks. Guys, I, I, I want more to be written about us than that was a nice church. They've got a fountain. Really? Oh, that's a nice church. Fill in the blank. I just, I don't want to be chasing sticks. I mean, Paul's 25 years into this call. Two things he's been given, grace and apostleship. Folks, I don't know how long you're in this journey. We're into this turnaround thing. We're past the turnaround. It's not even an issue. God has turned us around. Let's talk about what the future is, but we're more than 15 years into this thing. He's given us grace, and he's given us a call to reach this city and this world for him, and I don't want to sit around chasing sticks. I'd much rather have stories like Chris where somebody's at work talking to, he comes back saved out of gambling and it's just, I gotta tell people because I've received grace, you gotta find out about Jesus. I'd much rather have those stories 